All right, well, hi, listeners. We're back with another episode of Understand South Carolina. Today, we're checking back in on the state of restaurants in the Charleston area. I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Emily Williams. We are joined again today by food editor Hannah Raskin. The last time that we had Hannah on the show, restaurants in South Carolina were just starting to reopen their outdoor dining areas. Now, as of this recording, South Carolina's restaurants have been allowed to reopen their dining rooms for about a month now. So... Some restaurants that reopened are starting to close again because members of their staff have been testing positive for coronavirus. Before we dig into this conversation about restaurants and COVID-19, I wanted to briefly discuss some news that just came in yesterday about Charleston's Wine and Food Festival. So yesterday, we see an Instagram post right from the festival saying that they will not use Marion Square, where the festival is is typically held every year, and we'll be calling for um, the Calhoun Monument that is in the square to be taken down. I guess Hannah, can you just uh, elaborate a little bit more on their on their post and uh, and why they said they were making that announcement? Sure. So this was released via social media on uh, what day is it? on Tuesday. Sorry, this was released via social media on Tuesday afternoon, um, saying exactly what you said um, that they are not they're going to boycott Marion Square is the way they put it, and they would no longer hold events at quote plantation. And I know they probably got a different response than expected from some. I know a lot of the comments were um, supportive on that post, but some activists were calling them out after this, right? Um, what what were you hearing from people in terms of why, yeah, this, why they, yeah. Sure. Um, this was a terrible statement, to be honest. I mean, so it, they, it wasn't shared with me. It was funny. Um, I only learned of it after the social media post went up and someone drew me into the discussion, at which point a festival representative sent me the statement and said, of course, this isn't food news. And I said, well, I'll decide what's food news. Um, and I think the fact that the statement was so poor um, certainly qualifies. So the problem here is that wine food, going back to its founding in 2006, has had at best a contentious relationship with the local black community. Um, Part of this is just general to festivals. Um, Festivals tend to work on a model where they don't compensate chefs. Um, And so celebrity chefs who are overwhelmingly white and male are the ones who can most afford to participate in the festival system. And there's been very little done um, in order to support people from marginalized communities participating at the same rate. So In addition, you have the festival for years and years um, marketing a kind of Charleston that a certain kind of person wants to see. And that person we know because they put out their surveys every year is very white and very rich. I don't know if they're very white, but they are white and they are rich. And uh, they they see a certain Charleston, which, um, as the statement alludes to, um, includes fancy dinners at plantations um, without much recognition of the labor and brutality uh, that those plantations involve. So this dates back a long time. So the problem with this statement for activists in the community was that rather than acknowledge any of their own failings, they instead decided to condemn someone who's been dead for a century and took probably in their eyes, the easiest way out is to say, basically they said we're opposed to racism. Full stop. 
And I think I would hope that's the lowest possible bar that we were opposed to racism. Um, the activists would like to see the festival do some of the work to uh, to make up for its shortcomings in the past. There was no indication in this statement it would do that. Additionally, this idea about I could go on, but the idea that they're not going to use plantations, there was no mention of the fact that all the fancy houses that they use in an urban setting here in downtown Charleston, of course, were also um, uh, home to slave, enslaved people. Um, so it, it was this very, I mean, I think the word performative came up a lot. Um, that's what it looked like to activists. I mean, especially the timing didn't help. I mean, I think had they put this out in 2008, maybe that would have been a somewhat brave statement to call for the bringing down this monument. Um, this came out literally after, you know, all these civil rights leaders have called literally after the city had said there is going to be an announcement today. I mean, you couldn't take less of a risk. Um, additionally, with um, the current, you know, mass gatherings rules, it's unlikely they're going to be in Marion Square. So they're basically saying we're not going to do what we can't do, even though we would be able to do it anyways. It, it, it's, a, it's a terrible statement. Mm. Yeah. And and just just to uh, clarify for listeners, we're recording this um, just after noon on Wednesday. <laughs> and that that statement that you or announcement, rather, from the city will be coming later this afternoon about what will be done with the Calhoun Monument. So, right, like you were saying, they put this statement out after the city had already said, you know, a kind of wink, wink, nudge, <laughs> we are going to have an announcement, you know, related to the Calhoun Monument that people have been calling for years uh, to be taken down. So just just for, for context for our listeners, that's the, the timing that we're looking at right now. Yep. Well, remains to be seen. Um, like, like you mentioned, we're uh, expecting uh, an announcement from the city at some point today, uh, actually on possibly the, the fate of that statue. So uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens there. I think we should probably shift on to the, the main topic that we wanted to discuss, though. Uh, so obviously, and we, we talked about this a little bit last time, we're simultaneously kind of dealing with this uh, phase of sort of starting to reopen our economy and, and in particular like restaurants and and uh other other places at the same time we're, we're seeing this really fast and alarming spike in in new cases in uh in south carolina and in particular in in the low country and, and other populated areas of our state so we've seen a spate recently of restaurants that have reopened but have had to re-close because of employees testing positive for coronavirus. So, uh, Hannah, did, did I do a good job summing it up, or, or is there anything else you want to add? You to did that? a great job, Emory. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, one one of the stories that you you wrote about was the South Carolina restaurants don't have to tell the public if an employee tests positive for coronavirus. So, let, let's start off with like, what's the explanation there? What what is why does DHEC say they, they don't have to inform the public? Oh, well, I mean, actually, I don't know how many states are saying they have to. Um, it's because they're already not being required to track who's coming in. So they don't even know who the public is. Um, I mean, they know they can make an announcement on social media, which has emerged as sort of the ritual, which is 
if you're handling it responsibly, you tell your employees first, then you put an announcement on social media to get the word out there. Then you shut down, you test all your employees, you deep clean, disinfect and sanitize, which restaurant owners will tell you they do anyhow. But, you know, uh, guests like to hear about that. And then you are up and running again. So. Um, but yeah, it's the same as almost everything else that's happening in the restaurant realm, which is it's unregulated. So they are not required to tell employees, excuse me, tell guests. They are allowed to tell employees, but must, of course, observe confidentiality rules. So um, increasingly, as DHEC has become more involved, I can get to that in a moment. Um, they're telling some restaurant owners, don't tell all of your employees. You may just want to tell a specific subset of your employees. So we know that when restaurants reopened, they had these these statewide guidelines, right? Did those guidelines address what to do if one no. of your employees gets coronavirus? Interesting. Well, they did and they didn't. So I've gone through, if you go through, they have a page on the DHEC website that's like the toolkit for reopening. And there's 31 different documents on the page and it is buried in one of them. Um, I mean, it took me time as a reporter whose job is to go through documents. I cannot imagine a restaurant owner ever coming across it. But there, and it also, it's not laid out saying it's in like three different places within one document. So what I'm leading up to is this. Um, restaurant owners last week kind of demanded a meeting with DHEC. There were 35 Charleston area operators who jumped on a call with DHEC and representatives, representatives of MUSC's Back to Business program, um, which is, you know, all gung-ho on the economy, reopening the economy. Um, and basically, these 35 restaurant owners said, we need clearer guidance. And DHEC agreed. So I think within the week, although they haven't um, issued a specific date, they're going to put, put out exactly what you're talking about, sort of this one page document that says, here's what to do when you're, you have an employee who tests positive. Um, it won't have any additional new information, but they're going to go through all 31 documents and put together what they've already been saying. And this is the important part. They have never said that a restaurant should close. So I think at this point, we've seen the last of the closings. So if not the last, I, I should back that up just a bit to say um, they're really emphasizing an individualized approach. So it could be that if a restaurant were to contact DHEC and say, yeah, you know, we have 14 employees, they might close. You know, I, I can't speak to every situation, but this idea of, as I referenced earlier, that, you know, you notify employees, you notify the public and you close, that whole ritual was developed by restaurant owners, not by DHEC. It was something that was just, it's a little bit of PR, it's a little bit of instinct. Um, but what the restaurant owners told DHEC last Friday and what they've told me is they are not scientists and they don't know. The scientists at DHEC seem to think you don't have to close. Can you describe for us when this started? Was it the the two restaurants on, on King Street, um, Bourbon and Bubbles and... Uh, Mesu. So those are the two first. Those are the two we know about. They were really the first to um, to emphasize being transparent. Now, remember, during the dining closure, there was probably less pressure on restaurants to announce um, because they didn't have to close because they were closed. So we don't actually have a count. DHEC is not tracking restaurant closures. And if they're tracking restaurant employee cases, that's confidential. That's nothing that we would ever have access to. You know, we don't know the names of people who have been tested positive. And, and how did that information about those two restaurants come out? Was that a situation where they 
announce this on on social media first, or was this a situation where where maybe I a tip came them? to you? Yeah, yeah. I called them. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so this idea—I mean, I, I, you know—I tried to to influence restaurateurs um, to tell us. I mean, that was sort of the idea that if you don't tell us. We'll tell people. I uh, was sort of, I mean, now it makes it sound like I'm running the mafia over here. It's actually a newspaper. But um, the idea is that, you know, there, this is in the public interest um, to know that if you basically right now, you can't have open restaurants without cases. I mean, you just can't. We can have closed restaurants and fewer cases among employees, or we can have open restaurants with cases. Um that's just the nature of the restaurant business. People are going to get sick. And it seemed that we needed to remind people of that. And I know some restaurant employees described you, I guess, some of the reasons why, like you said, if you're going to have restaurants open, you're going to have cases. Some people are working in, in close quarters at times. Uh, what were some of the things you were hearing from employees? Yeah, I think this is important for people to remember that when you go and eat at a restaurant, you don't necessarily see what's happening in the kitchen. I have yet to hear of any Charleston area restaurateur who's completely redone their kitchen for the safety of employees. So, I mean, look, when you think about how many tens of thousands of dollars you spend on a grill and that whole setup, you're not going to get one that allows for social distancing, nor do you have space in your restaurant to dedicate. I mean, you would need, you know, a 15 foot long grill. You know, if your grill is three feet across, you got two guys working on it. That's just how it goes. So the people working in the back, the people working in the front, I saw this on the first day of reopening of outdoor dining is if you have a big, busy restaurant, like many on Shem Creek are, you have two cute little hostesses standing together at the host stand. And if you, cause you, you know how long a host stand is, you're not going to have six feet between those women. Um, they stand together so they can look at the same chart, the same seating chart. I mean, it's all these like very, just like the details of restaurant work require closeness. So one of these restaurants that has had, I believe it was three cases, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is Snob. And their, I guess their initial response versus what they decided to do later. So can you describe that for us? So what initially happened when they, I believe, had one case um, versus changing course after I know some employees were concerned and shared those concerns. Right. Initially, so there, there are two parts. So there's the closing part and then there's the notification part. And as I said, legally, you don't have to disclose to the public. And what I keep telling readers is I would hope, and I know I said this earlier, but just know if you're walking into a restaurant, just assume someone has coronavirus. I mean, it is so it is so prevalent. Um, so whether or not you notify guests, I think the public should just keep that in mind. Just behave as though someone there has coronavirus, whether they do or not. Um, so there's that part is the notification part. Um, and then addition, there's the closure. So the notification, um, even these restaurants that are probably not going to close anymore. Now that the heck has said it's not mandated. Um, it never was and won't, never will be. Um, there's still like the transparency with workers. That's really important. Um, as I said earlier, D says you don't have to tell every employee, but our employee, I mean, restaurant employees are terrified right now. And so that's what happened at Snob originally is they got a report. You really can't keep a secret in a restaurant. So, I mean, tech started flying and the employees knew and they knew their employer hadn't told them. And that created kind of a loss of faith, um, a loss of trust. That's problematic. So I think just from a, you know, a leadership perspective, this has nothing to do with community or public health. Um, you know, the, the better restaurants are saying we need we need to keep our folks in the 
Has there been any consistency in terms of how long a restaurant has closed after they've announced they're temporarily closing? Seems no. like it's been, yeah, it, it, it seems be like it's any, been different. Yeah. It can be 24 hours. It can be, we don't know when we're reopening. Um, and I, you know, I respect that we don't know when we're reopening because again, it, 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 there is a good reason right now really to not be open. And it doesn't have to do with you having one person on staff who tested positive. It has to do with us having, you know, record days again and again and again. It has to do with community health. So I think in some cases people are closing because they're going through that thought process. For example, um, right across from the Post and Courier, the alley, which is the, um, the bowling alley slash junk food place. Uh, and I don't know if you call it junk food, you know, fun food, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they were supposed to open on Tuesday. And on Monday, the owner announced that they just wouldn't. He just didn't feel safe watching the numbers, uh, which was great. I mean, that's a really, he was taking, you know, taking stock of the situation we're in and he decided against reopening. Now, after doing the, after he made that announcement, the CBB got in touch with him and set him up with a back to business advisor. So I think they would, they would like to see that situation work out differently, but for now he's closed. And I think this is a, a good time to remind people that our episode last week was uh, a discussion all about this, these increases in, in cases that, that we've been seeing. And, and, and Emery, do you want to give a brief update of just what we've seen in the last several days? I- yeah, I mean, I think to make a long story short, um, what we've seen in the last couple of days is more of the same, if not worse. Um, we did a whole episode last week about the fact that we were seeing this alarming spike. We were seeing cases accelerating and record um, numbers of new cases per day. And that has not changed. And if anything, it has just continued to accelerate. Um, I, I mean, I guess numbers have been slightly down the last like two days, but that's not that that's that's nothing in the in the scheme of like what we've seen for the past two weeks, pretty much. Yeah, so I, I guess that that's the the summary. There is um we're, we're not making significant progress in in controlling this uh most recent outbreak. I had a really I had a reader call me uh, yesterday, just very angry, and said, you know, I, I I said to me, well, you need to get the state to, um, you know, to close down these restaurants where they have a case. You need to have them change the law. And it's shocking how many times readers think I can change the law. Mm -hmm. I said, well, you know, I can't do that. That's not how South Carolina is running things. Um, It's really taking a a hands-off approach to a a lot of this coronavirus control. So I said to to her exactly, I said to you, assume that there's a case and act accordingly. And she said in great anger, she said, so you expect me to take personal responsibility? <laughs> well, <laughs> you don't have to, but I mean, but that's where we're at. I mean, and I, I hope that's the message that gets through to, to yeah. people who are thinking about going to restaurants or just out yeah, about I mean, this community. I, I think I've gotten a lot of the same feedback and, um, uh, you know, wherever, wherever I might land on, on what I think we should or shouldn't be doing, I, I think that is an important message to, to get out to, to people is that, you know, if you remember how this kind of played out in back in March when we first started to see a, a spike in cases locally. Um, we reacted really aggressively. Uh, Charleston enacted like the first shutdown order in the state, then came a, a statewide shutdown. There's a lot of evidence that that worked pretty well. Um, we entered a, a period of, of kind of a long plateau, but we never really saw cases decline very much after, after that. We are... 
And by we, I, I mean government leaders are, are taking a, a very different um, approach this time around, which is interesting because in, in some ways the, the situation is worse now than it was when we did lockdowns and, and shutdowns. But it seems that, that the, the, the decision is, is, has basically been made that we're going to see how this goes. Um, which, which is, you know, understandably maybe concerning to, to some listeners out there. Um, but you know, and, and again, you can feel however you want about that, but I I think it is important just to underscore like that. That's the reality of, of what's happening. And, um, short of, um, changing the opinions of, of the governments and, and people in charge, um, yeah, as, as Hannah was saying, it's, it's going to come down to personal responsibility. Right. Because also in a restaurant context, and it, it, just to say, you also can't trust the business leaders to look out for you necessarily. When you think about how long these restaurants were closed, I mean, I, I totally get where they're coming from. I've seen some of these restaurants. We've all seen them where people are packed in. And I get it's very hard for owners right now to turn a customer away. I mean, there is, again, there's no law about capacity in this state, so they can have as many people as they want, but this is where it comes back to personal responsibility. It's up, you know, I don't, the business owner made a choice. Now it's up to you if you really want to go eat in that place. I think it's also relevant to bring up here. I was just on a Zoom call for the uh, Charleston area's annual travel council meeting, uh, which is typically a big luncheon this year. Like I said, it was it was a Zoom call. Um, but tourists are starting to come back. Uh, the the state actually hotel occupancy, it's it's still much, much lower than it would typically be this time of year. But South Carolina's hotels are filling more rooms than the region on average, than the U.S. on average. Um, so people are starting to see those travelers and their money come back. So we we know that there is no plan right now to go back to uh, shutting businesses or any kind of lockdown situation at this moment. And like you said, just like how it's difficult for a, an individual restaurant owner to turn someone away, I think um, business leaders don't want to turn those tourists away after okay. seeing how much um, money has been lost here. So um, that is, like you said, where where we're at right now. Right. And, we, you know, and also we're drawing people who are very excited that, you know, we're open. We're totally open. We may not have the restrictions that they have to deal with at home. One of the things I wrote about this week was I was curious. We had a, a bad spate of weather maybe a week or so or just a bunch of cloudy days. And I was curious with a renewed emphasis on outdoor dining, if weather has become more consequential for restaurant owners, because you would think they've put out more tables possibly or made more people want to sit outside. Every restaurant owner I called said, everyone wants to sit inside. Like, and no one wants to sit outside. They don't care if it rains. Uh, everyone wants to sit outside. Uh, I sit inside, excuse me. Everyone wants to sit inside. There, there's, and the, in something like half a dozen states, that's still illegal. You can't even go indoors in Massachusetts and Illinois. Like, you can't eat inside. Here, it's the preference, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. You also wrote about um, the differences that you saw between Black-owned restaurants in the Charleston area um, and and white-owned establishments, and you saw that that 
that the uh, Black-owned restaurants were actually opening up to dine-in at a at a lower rate, right? Oh, so it, yeah. I mean, so as we know, and I'm sure you've talked about on the podcast, right, that this this pandemic has had a disproportionate effect on, on Black communities. Right. Um, and so they're incredibly aware of that. And, you know, they don't want to hurt their families. They don't want to hurt their communities. Um, obviously, that's not as much of a concern for white owners, which I think is pretty sad. I mean, it was incredible. Really, call, so I called up, you know, every Black-owned restaurant um, in the Charleston area with at least those I couldn't determine from their social media what, you know, whether they were open or not. And, you know, as a reporter, part of our job is just to ask dumb questions. But these I felt like I was asking, asking the dumbest question. I was like, so why are you not reopened? Like, why would I be open? You know, and it's like they really thought I was a total idiot for thinking they would be open while at the same time, you know, I don't remember the percentage, but certainly a significant majority of downtown white owned restaurants were totally open. Right. And then I, I know you said the the perception was kind of why, why would I be open? But I guess what were some of the other ex- specific explanations maybe that you were hearing from people about why they felt it was the best idea to stick to takeout at this time? It really was just for safety. I mean, it yeah. was, I mean, it's here, like, have you heard about the coronavirus? Like it did, it didn't even make sense to them um, that, that you would court that kind of risk. I, I know one of the, the places that you um, mentioned in that story right up top is one of my favorite Dave's Carryout, which despite the name um, does usually have some tables inside it. I usually yeah. see some people sitting at them. So, um, but I know of course they took those tables out, right. And just uh, yeah. Make sure that people are getting their food and, and moving out. So yeah. glad that place got a shout out. I love Dave's. Yes, it's terrific. Uh, so we also wanted to ask you about your experience dining in a restaurant. Because, um, of course, you did that in your role as a as a critic to inform readers of what that experience was like. So can you just tell us about that? Where did you go? And what did you see and how did yeah. you feel about it? So I went to Fig. Um, I think the first week it was reopened. Um, and, it, you know, Fig is in a class by itself in, in this city. Um, it is, you know, it's up this year for a Beard Award for Best Restaurant in the Country. Um, it's won, you know, multiple Beard Awards in the past. So I was really curious to see how one of the best restaurants in the country was going to handle reopening. And, you know, certainly, as we've said a gazillion times, there are no laws in South Carolina regarding how you um, how protocols that you should take in the name of safety. But everything that you were supposed to do, they were doing. There was hand sanitizer on the table. It was lovely. The tables were much further apart than they used to be. Um, Much fewer, you know, far fewer people in the dining room. Um, and I really didn't like it. I'm glad I went. I I wasn't ready after that to go back. Um, my feeling was that as I wrote about, it just almost came too close to the old experience that it was just barely kind of pointed out what had been lost or what was missing. Um, and so it just felt I just felt nervous the entire time because, again, as we spoke, it said, you know, people are eating indoors. This is my first time going back indoors. Um, they made that choice because they're pretty comfortable with coronavirus, I guess. Uh, I wasn't then. I am not now. Um, and I just felt on edge for the entire meal. You know, I mean, we're still learning so much about this virus, obviously. I mean, every day we're finding out something new about the, you know, transmission patterns and so on. And 
I didn't feel comfortable. It just, it was too much on my mind that somebody was going to cough, that there was going to be some sort of interaction. Um, Nobody was wearing masks. As I wrote in the story, you know, I had a mask and just wearing it in the dining room. Someone thought I was the hostess. It's only employees who are masked. Um, So yeah, I didn't love it. The food was incredible. Um, It wasn't for me. Yeah, I I have not uh, dined indoors anywhere. I still can't, at least personally, um, imagine doing that right now. So it's just interesting to hear what that experience is like. It is interesting. And I, I still don't know yet. You know, I've had not just readers, but also restaurant owners ask me when reviews are going to start again, which is mm-hmm. to me like crazy, but I understand it is part of the return to normal. Um, it was interesting. I was just interviewed about this for someone else's piece and saying, you know, one of the most important things a critic does is, is figure out if a restaurant is doing what it intends to do. And I would hope now one of the things a restaurant intends to do is to keep its patrons safe. Um, So I think if there is a return of reviews, we may be looking at safety before we look at food quality. Um, But I think we're still a ways away from that, too. That is a really interesting question, just how all of this will change how you personally will approach a review and what what you're looking at and... Uh, might that become another category of its own? You know, what precautions they're For taking. Sure. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's, and I'm sure you're still in the process of thinking of what that will look like. We don't know right now, but that's, it's just an interesting aspect of what being a critic or being a restaurant critic will look like in the age of coronavirus. All right. Well, thanks so much for, for joining us, Hannah. That's a really interesting conversation. Um, a lot of a lot of <laughs> interesting things going on in, in this space. Uh, I want to remind listeners that um, if you're interested in following the the broader coronavirus story, um, you can find real time stats and all of our latest coverage on the coronavirus pandemic in South Carolina by going to postandcourier.com and heading to our COVID nineteen dashboard. You'll find it somewhere on the homepage. It moves around a little bit, but just look for a bit. It, it's easy to find. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and if you've got any comments or questions about this podcast, um, easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. We are at UnderstandSC on Twitter. Um, Hannah, how can listeners get in touch with you? Um, I'm also on Twitter at Hannah Raskin. That's my name. No, I was going to tell you which letters aren't in my name, but maybe it'd be better just spell it. <laughs> Hannah Raskin, H-A-N-N-A-R-A-S-K-I-N. Um, or might via email is hraskin all right great well again thank you so much yeah thanks so much for having me yes and listeners uh keep wearing your masks and thanks for listening thank you be safe all right and that's all understand south carolina is a production of the post and courier in charleston Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.